Good morning, Crossroads. How we doing? Good to see you guys. Can we give our team a hand for leading us this morning? We're so thankful for that. And, uh, you know, I so appreciate our team, the talent here. I appreciate Pastor Ernesto and his leadership. And, you know, you, you might ask, you know, why, why, uh, why do we get so excited? Why do we clap? Why do we celebrate what God is doing and has done? And I, some of us, we, we like to clap or lift our hands or, or celebrate that. Some like to move to the beat a little bit. You know, why is that? I was reminded of this yesterday as I was watching my uh, beloved Maryland Terrapins beat up on the uh, Ohio State Buckeyes basketball. Of course, basketball is our, our thing. And, and uh, I, I was cheering. I found myself during that game going, yes, you know, a great dunk. And I was like, yeah. bring. And I'm thinking, does God not deserve more than that? Does God not deserve our celebration, our glory and honor? You know, why do we do all these lights and celebration? Why do we kind of move around and clap? It's because God is worthy of that. If we can celebrate for our greatest team, why can't we celebrate for the God of the universe, who his kingdom will be of no end? You know, he's worthy of that. And so I'm reminded of that. You know, uh, a lot of times in larger churches, we take heat uh, for things like that. And people say, I don't really like big churches. And you know what I always say to people like that? I always say, you're not going to like heaven. You're not going to like it. I mean, millions of people that know Jesus. You're talking about jumping around and celebrating. I don't know about you. I'm going to be on the front of the dance floor celebrating the goodness of God in that moment and what he's done in my life. And so uh, I, I'm just think, think, so thankful for our team and how they lead us and the integrity of which they lead us. There's a lot of intentionality. By the way, if you notice, these songs present the gospel. They present the gospel of Christ. And there's a, they, there's a theme that they, each of them have as they follow through with that. And so I'm thankful for them leading us. If you would turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. You don't have a Bible. There is one in the seat back in front of you. If you turn with us this, this morning to page 810. Matthew chapter 5, page 810. If you're here without a Bible in your home, take that with you as a gift from our church. You want to make sure that you know that God has spoken. It has been written for us in our language to understand what God has revealed about himself. We don't know everything there is to know about God, but we know some things because God has shown us himself. And so you can take that with you. As you turn there, a couple things I just want to highlight uh, with you. First of all, we have a team that is leaving this week uh, to, head, to head to Panama City, Florida. They will be serving in partnership with Samaritan's Purse. And uh, we got to pray for them during the 9 o'clock service. And we're so thankful. Uh, you know, we, Samaritan's Purse only allows teams of about 15 and we had 15 people sign up like that when we made that known. And so that is a packed team that will be heading this week to Florida. And they're going to be serving in the area that was hit last year by Hurricane Michael, a Category 4 hurricane. And if you remember, uh, that hurricane uh, was actually one of the most devastating hurricanes ever to hit the panhandle of Florida, Category 4, severe damage that was done. And uh, we had teams of people ready to go right away, but, but some of the limitations that we have is that we need people on the ground who know what's happening and how safe it is. And so Samaritan's Purse has given some green lights to go in there, and that team is going to be doing some demo, uh, demo uh, demolition. They're going to be doing some debris cleanup. They'll be doing what's called mud outs, where they go into homes and begin to clear out the mud from the uh, wreckage that took place there. And uh, they'll be on some roofs, doing some roof repair and different things like that. And so I'm so thankful for that team. Would you commit to praying for them this next week, that God would give them safety and that God would use them greatly? And the thing I love about Samaritan's Purse is they're going to get opportunities to pray with the people that were impacted by that hurricane. And so just pray that their stories uh, would just go forth in care and ministry to those people and that the gospel would go forth and lives would actually be changed as a result of this tragedy. Uh, and then secondly, uh, I just want to highlight, we've got coming up one of my favorite services, 
our baptism service. On March 6th and 7th, we're going to be celebrating all weekend those who will be publicly declaring their faith. What baptism is, is a public declaration of an inward change. It is a picture that is painted that you believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what baptism is. And so if you're here and you have not been biblically baptized, what I mean by that is that you believe in Jesus, but you never followed the command then to be baptized, I want to encourage you to stop by Next Steps. We would love to get you signed up to be baptized over the next couple of weeks. In fact, this past Friday evening at our prison campus, I don't know if you know this or not, we have a service in the prison every Friday night. And this past week uh, at our prison campus, we had two men baptized. Uh, they were new to the faith, and they came, and they publicly declared their faith before the others. And so we had two men baptized. God is doing an amazing work in our prison campus, and we are just now starting to get the stories of men who are now released and going back to their homes and stories about how that campus, that church service, that gathering made a difference in their lives. And so pray for our prison campus. Uh, God is doing an amazing work there. And if you're interested in being baptized, to say, I want to declare my faith in Jesus Christ, publicly before people that will pray for me. Uh, stop by Next Steps. We'd love to get you signed up. We're in a series here in Matthew chapter 5 through the Sermon on the Mount. And this is called the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus is preaching while on a mount. And, and so this message that he's preaching is going out to mostly Jews, but others who are listening, his disciples among other people that had now gathered. Entire cities were beginning to follow Jesus because of the healings and the works that he was doing. And so there was a big crowd that was gathered, and he was preaching to them. You remember at the beginning of the series, we said that what Jesus does is he comes to the scene, and he begins to preach a countercultural message. He begins to proclaim what the kingdom is actually looked like, what, what it actually looks like, what the kingdom looks like as we live it. This kingdom that is now but not yet, this kingdom that now lives in us through Jesus, but is not fully realized physically. Spiritually, it's known, but physically, it's not. And so Jesus came to usher in the reality of the kingdom. But we begin in chapter 5 with what is called the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the, the, those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who are meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And it goes on and talks about this, this opposite, upside-down perspective of the kingdom. When you read it, you don't get the image of the kingdom. But what Jesus is saying is this is what kingdom living looks like. This is what the kingdom responds to. This is how the kingdom is impacted. This is what kingdom people who reflect God look like. Last week, Pastor Jesse brought us a great message about the importance of obligation versus devotion. And he talked to us in this really key passage after saying that Jesus calling us to be the salt of the earth. Jesus follows up with, with something that would be pretty pointed. He says to the people that I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. He then says, in response to that, he says, not a, an iota, not a dot of the law will be taken away. And then he makes this bold, odd statement. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Now what Jesus was doing, and this is so important, if you don't get anything else, you've got to get this to understand the rest of this sermon, the rest of this series. What Jesus is doing is he is confronting two different types of people. First of all, there are followers there that would have heard Jesus give the Beatitudes, the beginning of chapter 5, and they would have felt overwhelmed, right? They would have heard Jesus say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And they would hear that and they would say, 
what in the world is he talking about? Is he just a scribe who is adding another law on top of another law, a Pharisee just calling us to be perfect? And so there would be some people that would feel greatly overwhelmed and burdened by that. And so Jesus responds and says, no, 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 I have not come to abolish the law. I actually have come to fulfill the law for you. You don't have to do this in a righteousness to gain heaven. You do this because you have me, and I'm going to fulfill it, and now I'm going to make it reality in living through you. Then there's another crowd. The other crowd are the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious people. And so he confronts them and says, listen, I didn't come to get rid of the law. I didn't come to to abolish it. But I'm going to tell you, if you're going to follow a religious path, if you're going to try to be righteous to get into heaven, then your righteousness better succeed that of the scribes and Pharisees. You better be perfect is what he's saying. And every other person would have paused there and thought, I'm out. I can't do that. I can never be as good as the religious elite of the day, the scribes and Pharisees. And what Jesus was doing is causing the people to feel inadequate, so they turn to him in faith, and they see that he fulfills the law and brings righteousness to us, not by our own doing, but by his goodness. Then we read this, And all of a sudden, the kingdom realities make sense. Why? Because I'm not doing it because I need to gain something. I'm doing it because I already have what I need to live a kingdom life. In other words, I have belief in Christ who brings me righteousness, and now my behavior follows my belief. It's not the other way around. If you try to live with behavior bringing you belief, it'll never satisfy. You'll never be good enough. You'll never be satisfied with the journey. But when you understand that belief leads to behavior, all of a sudden you can become a kingdom living impacted person, a kingdom reflected life, a kingdom type person. And here we find Jesus after this, as he says these words, he now turns to what would be six commands. These six commands, uh, many are called the antithesis. They call them the antitheses because they seem to be against what he just said. He's going to mention the law and and then he's going to enhance the law. But these are not the antitheses, that's what scholars call them. These are actually the culminations. What do I mean? What Jesus is going to do is say, here's what the law says, but really what this law is about is the heart. Where is your heart? What is your heart like? What's really going on in the inside? And so really he's going to enhance the law to show what's happening behind the scenes of the law in the heart of people. And when we get this, we begin to reflect this type of living. Now the first one that Jesus is going to bring up here is the topic of anger. Now, let me ask you this this morning. How many of you would confess that you have been angry before? Anybody else? Anybody out there? You have been angry before. And everyone who doesn't raise their hand, I'm angry at you. <laughs> right? All of us here can confess we have been angry before. Right? We all have dealt with anger in our lives. In fact, uh, we can share story after story of how anger uh, has turned events in our lives. I, I remember, I'm not going to share a personal story. I'm going to share somebody else's story. Um, but I remember the first time I really saw, like, anger in, in a, a very odd way. You know, I've seen anger in my life, but there was one moment personally where it just was really personalized, and it happened when we lived in Maryland. Um, our house was kind of on a corner of a road, and it T-boned a, uh, a kind of a cul-de-sac road, a road, uh, a road that was a dead end, and so it was perpendicular, and around the border of our home were trees. In fact, Around our house, there were 168 trees. You might say, Dave, how do you know that? I counted every one of them because I had to mow around them. 
And so one of the stipulations when we moved here, I said, babe, I don't want any trees in the yard. No trees. I don't want to mow around a tree. I don't want to pick up leaves again. And so, uh, but my, my house there, they had, it had trees. And, and the whole property was lined with these trees. And they weren't really good trees. They were the, kind of the cheap farm trees they put on properties when they're really trying to build a development. And so there were these trees everywhere, individual trees, no forest. And in and, and the outside of the border of our property, there was a ditch. And it was a runoff ditch for water and different things when, when it would rain and when the snow would melt. And so, uh, so I would usually start by mowing. When I would go out to mow, I would mow the ditch first. And then I would go inside the trees. And so one day I was out on a summer, summer afternoon, and I was mowing my yard. I was on my riding mower. I had my headsets in. I was listening to a podcast or a sermon, maybe some music. I don't remember exactly, but I was out there just kind of cruising along, just mowing the yard. Now, in the ditch where I mow, because of the trees with close proximity, it caused some of the, the area to become bare. So the grass would grow, but there would be bare areas. So here I am just kind of floating along on this dry summer day, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, this is no exaggeration, out of the blue, I see a fork go right in front of my face. That's right, a fork. A fork just flies in front of my face. And I'm like, what in the world just happened? Did I hit a fork? Where did this fork come from? And so I'm looking around thinking, did I hit a fork and it fly up from under the, the mower? And then I, I turn to the side and I see one of my neighbor's sons. Now, along the side of our house, there was a family that lived in one of the homes, and they had two sons. One was 20, one was 19, and they were considered, based upon the neighbors', the neighbors uh, kind of whisperings, they were considered the terrors of the neighborhood. Well, I always, whenever I hear that, I always want to give people the benefit of the doubt. And so whenever I would see them, I would go out of my way to wave at them, to ask them how they were doing. Well, on this day, here I am mowing, and I turn around and see the 20-year-old son yelling at the top of his lungs at me. Now, mind you, I am riding on a mower, I have headsets in, I have no clue what he's saying, but he is going off on me, and he is flinging every finger he owns. They're just flying all over the place. Then I realize, this fork came from him. Like, he threw a fork at me. And so, I got to tell you, in that moment, there was anger rising up in me. It was rising up, and I've shared with you before, I'm a little bit from the hood. And so when that begins to rise up, I don't care how big you are. I don't care how strong you are. I'm a scrappy guy. And so there was this anger riding. I'm going to go, he wants to, does he want to do this? He's, I was like, okay, he's over 18. I can take him now. <laughs> and so I stop the mower. I turn it off. I get off. And I look over, and he begins to walk in the house. He don't want a piece of me. He don't want, he don't want this. And so I, I pray in that moment, God, help me. I, I try to be a good example to these neighbors. I'm a pastor. That's a really awkward thing if I beat them up. Um, so, so I pick up the fork, and I think, what am I going to do with this fork? And everything in me wants to take the fork and just chuck it at his house. But I pick up the fork, I walk over to his yard, and I drop the fork at the base of their mailbox. I then go get back on the mower, and then I notice mom and dad coming over. So mom and dad come over, and I say, you know, yes, ma'am, what, what's, what's going on? Yes, sir. And I find it very interesting. Dad said nothing, only mom did. And, and mom proceeded to tell me that, that her son was upset. And I was like, well, I, it was obvious when I saw the fork fly in front of my face. And I said, you do realize I have young children. I mean, that fork could have hit anybody, and it could have certainly hit me. And, and she goes, I know, I know, I'm sorry. He just reacted, and he's angry. And, and I'm like, <laughs> and that 20-year-old boy needs some discipline is what I think. And so she begins to tell me that he was out working really hard washing his car. And then he happened to park his car along the street instead of the garage. They had a three-car garage and did car work. 
And because I was mowing where I was mowing, the dust rose up and began to get on his car. And so he was angry. Now, I got to tell you, my reaction, I what I wanted to say was, oh, your poor little baby got some dust on his car. That's what I wanted to say. Are you kidding me? You throw a fork at me because your car gets dusty? But I held it back. I did say, well, you realize I can't control the wind. Like, you realize I had no control over where this dust goes. I'm just mowing my yard. So in the moment of peace, I decided I went in and got a few dollars. I brought it to them and said, hey, tell him I'll, I'll pay for his car wash to be rewashed. And I am the only person in America for that season of my life, the only person in America that texts his neighbor when I would go mow my yard. I am dead serious. I was the only person in the entire country that mowed his neighbor every time I would go mow my yard in order to make peace. Now, I say there are many other times I did not want to make peace, but in that moment, I did. See, the point of it is, much of life is marked by anger, isn't it? I mean, a friendship that goes south, a, a marital strife that seems to continue to escalate, a child that knows how to push our buttons in the exact way to cause our head to be overwhelmed with conflict, a passive-aggressive comment that comes from a boss or a co-worker that just drives us nuts, or maybe it's a referee at your kid's game that keeps getting the calls wrong. Anybody else been there? I've been caught guilty in those moments. And part of my problem isn't that I'm actually mean. It's that when I talk, I don't know how to whisper. And so it just comes out and it penetrates the entire, the, the entire gymnasium. And so people look at me and I think, well, I should probably should have said it that loud. I didn't mean to really go off on the ref like that. I love refs when they make the right calls. Here's the point. Studies will show that we have a massive anger management problem in our culture. In fact, one anger management company said one out of every five Americans has what they would consider an anger problem. Uh, the New York Times did a study, and the article read, Why are Americans so angry? And th listen, this is eye-opening. 69% of Americans said they are somewhat angry or very angry in the world today. Think about that. 69% of Americans said they're somewhat angry or very angry angry. In fact, we all confess we have anger at times. Now, the question is, what is anger? What, what is anger? Where does it come from? Anger is certainly an emotion. It's an emotion. We know that. But it's not like every other emotion because anger is actually a secondary emotion. What do I mean? Anger doesn't come by itself. Right? You can't sit here this morning and say, you know what? I'm going to be angry today. No, your anger needs a context. You can choose to be angry today, but you have to have a context to make you angry. And so maybe for you it's fear, or maybe for some it's a feeling of attacked or offended or disrespected, or maybe you feel pressure to do something, or you feel trapped by a situation, and so anger comes as a result. Anger is a secondary emotion. It comes as a result of something else. Secondly, I believe that anger is a divinely implanted emotion. What do I mean by that? Well, if you're angry for the right cause, anger is a call in our lives that we love true righteousness, right? We get angry because we love what is right. In fact, I would dare say, if you don't get angry ever, you have a problem. Things in our world should anger us. And anger is an emotion that God has given to us to be able to respond rightly to things that are righteous and against what is wicked. You and I should hate and get angry over evil in our world. We should. It is a normal response. The problem is this. Like all emotions, anger should actually be an informant. 
What do I mean? Anger should inform us that something is wrong. Anger should inform us there's something going on the inside. But what happens? Anger hijacks the process, and instead of being an informant, it becomes a controller. Anger begins, instead of informing us, to control us. And all of a sudden, that control begins to cross lines, and then we begin to say things we regret, and we begin to do things that we can never get back. See, that's what anger does. What is a normal response, a God-given response, is hijacked by the process of anger, and all of a sudden it takes over our lives. And then we begin to be defined by what has made us angry. Jesus here understands that anger will be something we will deal with in kingdom living. And so he writes, as a first example of a command to call us to what a kingdom life looks like, he deals with the topic of anger. Six verses, all that Jesus says about anger, and yet these verses are power-packed. He understands the Jews themselves would have been overwhelmed in anger toward the Roman Empire. They were angry to the Pharisees and the scribes. They were angry about the things of their lives. They were angry about situations they were facing, and so Jesus confronts it. Take a look with me, Matthew chapter 5, and we'll begin in verse 21. It says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift then. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and then you be put in prison. And truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus begins this little section by mentioning this topic of anger. And he he begins by talking about something that everybody would agree on. And that is the, the, the Old Testament law, you shall not murder. It comes from Exodus chapter 20. God is writing the law, and he says, as the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Now, when people would hear this, most people agree to that point. Right? I mean, probably every one of us in here agrees that murder is wrong. And if you find somebody that doesn't, you better run for your life. Right? We all agree. It's written in our hearts. This is a, a law that's written in our hearts that murder is, in fact, wrong. We believe it's wrong. God didn't even have to say it's wrong. It's wrong. In fact, even if you don't believe in Christ, even if you're a a skeptic of religious things, you probably would say murder is pretty bad. You would say Hitler was bad. You would say Saddam Hussein was bad. You would say Ted Bundy. I know the Netflix series about Ted Bundy. I mean, those are evil people. People that murder, that's the worst. In fact, I dare you, go, go ask somebody, do you think you're a good person? You know one of the things that people say in response to that? When you ask, are you a good person, what is the one, one response we get? Well, yeah, I'm a good person. I've never murdered anybody. See, murder becomes a standard of what is good. A bad person murders. And Jesus says, if you murder, there is a liability for the murder, right? There's consequence. And by the, by the way, the law laid this out in the book of Numbers, in the book of Leviticus. If you murder someone, you would be put to death according to the Old Testament law. That's the image here. Again, to the Jews, that was their law. And you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody that would disagree with that. So what Jesus does, and he, he says, this is the circle that we have made of bad people. The circle is, you shall not murder. I'm not a murderer, I'm pretty good, I'm outside the circle. And what Jesus does is he takes a circle and he enhances it. 
He now says, but I say to you, if you have anger in your heart, you have actually committed murder. You have murder. You have an issue of murder. What he does is he take the, takes a circle and he expands it and says, no, 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 you can't escape this because murder is actually a hard issue. And it begins in the heart with anger. Now, I want to look at this from three different perspectives here as we dive in. First of all, number one, the problem of anger. What Jesus writes here should bring a pinch to religious people. It should pinch us a bit to think he, he spreads a circle and says, no, it's not just about murder, it's about our anger. The anger we all confess to having at times. The problem of anger. Notice what he says. Here's what he describes. He says, but I say to you, verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. I want you to notice specifically the context of what Jesus says anger looks like. Notice he doesn't say all anger is wrong. Anger in and of itself is a God-given emotion, as I said. It is a response to something we find unjust or unrighteous. By the way, I would argue that we should have anger over the situations that we find in the world at times. Right? You and I should be angry about abortion. Should. We should be angry about it. You and I should be angry about people that take children and make them sex slaves. That should cause us to be angry. You and I should be angry about, about people that take young children and enslave them to work. That should anger us. By the way, that's why we, we have a ministry in Cambodia to help rescue orphans. Many of them are, have been used as sex slaves or uh, child labor. And we help rescue them through an uh, organization, Asia's Hope. It's why we go to Guatemala and help girls who would usually be cast aside in culture get education so they can make a difference in culture. Why? Because we get angry about those things. Those things should burn in us. And Jesus himself, by the way, got angry, didn't he? He got angry about the, 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 the sellers in the temple who were abusing people by taking advantage of them making profit on the sacrifices. And so Jesus himself got angry. You and I should have anger about things of the world. Notice what Jesus says. He doesn't say you should not be angry. Notice he says, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother. Now you might notice a little note there. And there's a phrase in most manuscripts that's not in the ESV. It says, without a cause. If we are angry with our brother and we don't have a cause to be angry about, then he says it's like murder. It's wrong. It doesn't work. Certainly we should be angry about the affairs of the world, but, but what happens is when we begin to be angry at the people around us without understanding why we're angry, we have an issue. What Jesus is getting at here is that it's not wrong to be angry where the sin happens is what happens to our anger. Where the sin happens is what do we do with the anger we have? What do we do with the anger we feel? How do we respond to the anger? Do I bash in anger? Do I have unjust anger? Is my anger right? And Jesus says, if you're angry with your brother, and we don't know exactly who that is, it could be a Christian, it could be a fellow Jew as he's writing them, it could be anyone. And I, I think there's a generic aspect of this. If I'm angry with a brother without cause, then where is it going to take me? Where is it going to go? Now for you and I, there are all sorts of types of anger, isn't there? Like I don't know about you, but when I think of anger, I can't help but to think of the Incredible Hulk. Whenever I think of anger, I think of it at that level, right? And so I think of the Incredible Hawk, who all of a sudden something happens, and he turns green, and he just, Hawk smash! Some of you have not seen that movie, obviously. <laughs> and then what happens? 
something happens to make him more angry, and he gets more green and more intense. <laughs> whenever, I, whenever I think of anger, I can't help but to think, there were a few years ago, quite a few years ago, actually, I, I had the boys, uh, my four boys, for a day, and it was, we were, decided to do some guy stuff together, and so I took them, uh, they were pretty little, I took them to Chick-fil-A, and uh, it, we were sitting there having, you know, Chick-fil-A, I love it every day, you know, kind of thing. And uh, so we were at Chick-fil-A, we were getting a sandwich and, and some waffle fries, and uh, we were sitting in, in a booth all together, and uh, all of a sudden, this guy walks into Chick-fil-A, he walks over to the table right behind us, and starts pounding the guy at the table. And everybody says, and my reaction was, I need to protect my kids, because the, the tables are starting to fly, so I get the kids and I pull them away. <laughs> and this is true, there was this little old lady, probably in her 80s at least, who goes over and literally grabs the guy and goes, you can't do this in here, it's a family establishment. And he yells out, well, he's having a meal with my wife. And this was disaster happening. So we end up, I was like, boys, gather the meal, we're getting out of here. Um, um, and, and a couple of my boys were like, dad, I think you could take him. And I'm like, no, let's just, actually, I'm lying, they didn't say that, they, they do better. And so we got out of there, and my youngest son, he, he looked at me with such tender eyes, and he says, Dad, were they fighting over the waffle fries? <laughs> I said, yeah, that's what it was, sure. You gotta guard your waffle fries that you go. When we think of anger, we think of that level, don't we? We think of, man, this fight that breaks up. Can I tell you, some of you, you have different anger. For some of you, you have what I would call teapot anger. I'm a little teapot, short and stout. Here's my handle, here's my spout. That had nothing to do with what I'm gonna say, but it just came to my heart. When something gets you, you get steamed up. And eventually something comes out of you, a noise comes out of you. And you have to get away from the heat source or it's going to pour over. For others, you're like a landmine, right? The people around you, they walk very hesitantly because they don't know what's going to trigger you today. And so they walk around and they're, it's like a landmine. And what they know is that they step on the wrong button, you're going to go off about it. And it's just going to explode into chaos and confusion. For others, you're not a landmine, you're a freezer. You don't react with any words. For some, when you get angry, right, instead of reacting with words, you go cold silent. You give the silent treatment. You're a freezer, and you say, I'm not saying a word to them. I'm giving them the cold shoulder. I'm, I'm just going to roll my eyes every time I look at them. For others, you're like a diabolical surgeon anger. And what I mean by that is something happens, and you use the words of somebody else against them, and you begin to cut them with sincere, cutting sarcasm, and you just drive their words deep into their soul. For others, maybe your anger is like the undertaker. When someone crosses you, they're dead to you. You want nothing to do with them, you'll get away with them, you're done with them, you set them aside. In the words of Kevin O'Leary on Shark Tank, you're dead to me. Anybody else watch Shark Tank? Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that anger actually kills. Anger actually kills. What do I mean? Anger has the same seed in the heart as murder does. Just as a murderous action can affect a soul, a murderous attitude can affect a soul. Anger actually can kill. It can begin to wipe out a relationship in its form and function. That leads to point two, and that is this, the progressive nature of anger. I wanna show you here that there is a progression when it comes to anger. There is a progressive nature to anger. Notice what he says here, verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable of judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. I want you to notice 
the picture of the court case. He says, if you're angry, there's court. If you say insults, there's this Supreme Court. It's actually the word Sanhedrin, which was the Supreme Court of the Jews. And then thirdly, if you say you fool, there's the fire of hell. Now notice the progression. There's a progression to our anger. First of all, it starts as anger, right? This normal emotion. Something happens. Somebody says something. A situation occurs. We feel a reaction to it. The question is, where does that anger go? And so next he says, there are insults. In fact, the word insult here is an Aramaic word. Now, in the text, it stands out because whenever you see an Aramaic word, it's not a Greek word. New Testament is written in Greek. This word is Aramaic, and it's the word raka. Raka was a high-level insult in the first century. It literally means contempt or the idea that the person you're talking to, you're calling them empty. You're calling them an airhead, a numbskull, or in our culture, it would be like an idiot by definition. An idiot is someone who doesn't get it, and you're saying, you don't get it. You are brainless. That's the word raka. You are brainless. What happens? Notice, what begins as an inward feeling becomes a verbal assault. What begins as an inward feeling now begins to be words toward the person that we're angry with. Now we begin to say things. You numbskull, you, and I know we don't use that word very often. That's the word here. It's empty. You're nothing. You're empty. We begin to say them. We begin to increase. Now it becomes insult. And then eventually it becomes the word fool. Now when we read this word, we don't think this is a big insult, do we? Like we think of the word fool and we think of Mr. T. I pity the fool. But the word here, fool, actually is the highest of insults in the first century. Why, the word here in the Greek is the word moros, or moros. It's where we get our word moron. Moron. And what it literally means is, is not just they're just dumb. That's not what it means. It actually is, it means to be debased, to be vilified. It's character assassination. In other words, we're counting the person as nothing. Or let me take it one step further. By the way, notice how Jesus says it. Those who ever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. I want you to notice what he's using is a play on words here. The word moros literally has the idea that we're calling the person an unregenerate sinner who is not able to go to Christ and they're confined to hell. In other words, and I'm just using a literal phrase here, what the word fool means in the first century is to hell with you. That's what it means. I'm not using that in sarcasm. That's actually what it's saying. Is it's like saying you're so worthless, you just belong in hell. You're no good. You're no good for nothing. Now notice the progression. Anger becomes insults to eventually you're nothing. You're dead. Get away. You're worthless to me. All of a sudden we begin to play God in the situation. We begin to confine someone's eternal destiny. Notice the progression of liability. You go to court, you go to the Supreme Court, and then he says, but if you do this, it actually will be hell for you. It's a pretty bold statement, but what we find is increasing anger equals increasing liability. Anger has an answer to it. As we get more angry, there's a liability to the anger. So much so that it proves whether we're actually a part of the kingdom or not. It actually proves whether we belong in hell or not, which obviously without Christ we all do. But with Christ, it's proving that we don't know him if we react with the words fool. Now, I want us to see that because we all confessed here that we struggle with anger, all of us here. 
the question is, what do we do with anger? How far does it go? And I want to take a moment just to pause. You know, if you're here this morning and your anger, yeah, maybe your anger crosses lines. All of ours does at times, and we need to watch that. We need to be careful of that. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But maybe for some of you, that you cross a line not only just to insults, but now it crosses the line to where you're actually calling out fool. Not just the simple word fool, but the action of a fool. Maybe you're here, and for you, your anger stirs into abuse. Maybe for some, your anger becomes a berate, a berating reaction to your children or your spouse, and you berate them, and you put them down, and you play their worthless, play like they're worthless. You actually even maybe cross the line to abuse. Can I tell you, notice here Jesus' response to that. He says, for you is the hellfire. I want to say that this morning. I know that sounds harsh, it sounds strong, but it's so important. If you, if you cross the line into abuse, you're not acting like a kingdom person, and it's unacceptable. It's not good, it's not valuable. There's no good that can come from abusing someone. And I want to say to you, if you're here this morning and you've been abused, would you give us the privilege to walk with you? We want to protect you. You, you do not have to deal with that. That is unacceptable. And I know that may mean a lot of different things and how that looks, but listen, if you're being abused, that, that is something you need to escape from, and we would want to help you and walk with, with you through that. And so I know that's a very, very touchy thing to talk about, but you don't deserve to be berated and abused in that way. Jesus is very strong. Elevate your anger. Elevate it, uh, liability. Elevate it, consequence. It happens. Our tiny acts of murder can have great deep effect. That leads to point three, as we end this morning. Point three, the path to overcome anger. How do we overcome? Notice what he says. He describes it here. He says, verse 23, so if you are offering your gift to the altar, and he's giving a temple language here, you're, you're at the altar, and you're giving a gift to God. Notice what he says. You're in the midst of, of religious ceremony. You're offering your gift to the altar, and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. Even if you're walking to court, he says, go take care of it immediately. A couple things I want to highlight here that he says. First of all, if we want to have a path to overcome anger, and a little side note, notice Jesus gives an inference that we as people love ceremony over integrity, purity, and love. Notice he says that. He says, if you're giving a gift to the altar, but you know a brother has something against you, that you've been angry toward them and they know it, and you've crossed the line with them, he, he says, you need to go deal with that before ever going through the ceremony religiously. And I think sometimes we get that backwards, don't we? We think, I'm going to go through the ceremony, and all of a sudden, life is going to change. No, we get, life, we get life right in the areas that we can, kingdom living first, and then we offer to God what it is. And so it's not just checking a box of religion. It's saying, I want to make sure I'm doing this with the right heart. And that's what Jesus is getting at. So a couple things here. First of all, that we should give anger a short life. Give anger a short life. Notice he says, you're at the altar, leave the altar and go take care of it. Notice verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser. This word literally means to satisfy with payment. If you're on your way to court and you know this brother has something against you, this sister has something against you, deal with it immediately. Take care of it. Deal with anger as quickly as possible. I, I love the way Ephesians 4.26, it says it this way. It says, be angry and do not sin. 
Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. I love that picture. Don't let the sun set on your anger. Deal with it. Deal with it immediately. Take action with your anger. Act quickly to resolve relational strife. Don't let anger control you. Notice Colossians 3.8. It says, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, as anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy communication. He says, rid yourselves. I love that word. Rid yourselves literally means to take off. It's like clothing. I have anger. I need to take it off. I have malice, I need to take it off. I'm slandering, I need to take it off. The image is strip it down, get rid of it. Get rid of it as quickly as possible. He's saying don't let anger act. Take a breath, take a step back, take a moment and say, God, I need your help. I need to take this anger off. I don't want anger to act. Secondly, we need to analyze our anger. In the beginning I said that anger is actually an alarm. It's alarm that's going off saying something is wrong. And so we need to analyze, why do I feel the way I do? What is it that this anger is revealing about me? What is it showing me? For some, maybe it's showing a, a, an injustice that's being done. And it, are you going to react rightly? See, where is this anger coming from? Or a question you might ask is, what is the source of this anger? What is this big thing that's so important to me that I get defensive about it? What is this thing I am loving so much right now that my heart is moved to feel angry about it? And then we analyze, is this right? And it, you know what I find in my own life, if I can just be honest? When I begin to analyze my anger, I find that most of it stems from pride, an ego, or self-esteem. It stems from things that I think are, I want my way, even though they're not that important. Now, there are times where that anger is righteous and right, but, but a lot of times, when I analyze it, it's not worth the reaction I'm going to give it. And so I need to stop and I need to analyze it. Thirdly, we need to practice forgiveness. Practice forgiveness. Notice, by the way, number one indicator of success in relationships are how you deal with conflict. No, notice what he says in verse 24. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. And he says, first... Be reconciled to your brother. The word reconciled literally means to change the mind. It's the idea that we're called to go. And one of the ways we do that is by forgiveness. We have a forgiving heart. One of the aspects or characteristics of kingdom people are that we forgive. Now, if you've been around the world enough, you have seen what the spirit of unforgiveness does, haven't you? I know I have. And the spirit of un unforgiveness, it breaks marriages. It splits families. It ruptures friendships. It separates business par partners. It splits churches in two. It contaminates people. Forgiveness. Now, a couple things. First of all, if we're the one that has done wrong, we need to seek forgiveness. We need to be the ones to say as kingdom people, I'm sorry. I, I should not have done that. I should not have crossed that line. I need to get this right. I need to turn from it and put boundaries in place so that I never do it again. By the way, one of, the, one of the things I, I try to teach people that are getting married, young, younger people or, or those who are, are getting married and doing premarital counseling, I always talk about this idea of conflict. And I say, you know what? Even if you're 99.9% .9 right, go confess the 0.1% you have wrong. Don't say it, though. Right? You, you don't go to your spouse and say, hey, baby love, I'm 99.9% .9 right, but I have 0.1% that I have wrong. And so I want to confess that to you. I'm sorry for being 0.1% wrong. And don't, don't, don't do that. That's not going to work for you. <laughs> the point is, I want to go get right whatever it is that I have wrong. I want, to, I want to have forgiveness. And so I want to say I'm sorry for what I have wrong, even if I think I'm right in most circumstances. And by the way, I believe I'm right in most circumstances. My wife isn't in this service. Don't tell her I said that. She's still learning that I'm right in most circumstances. 
But can I tell you, and I, I'm kidding, but can I tell you something? This is honest, and I believe God has called me to lead my home. God has called me to lead my family. I believe that's a, a God-given calling to us as men who are husbands and fathers. We are called to lead our homes. And I can tell you, in my home, and my wife would attest to this, when we have a conflict, I will be the first to say I'm sorry. You know why? Because I want to lead them. I, I want to show them what it looks like to be, to be sorry, even if I believe I'm right. I want to be the first to show them what forgiveness looks like together. And so I say, I'm sorry, even if I, I lead the way so that we can get this thing right. Now, before we go any further, some of you will say, okay, I get that, but I've been hurt in the past. I've been hurt by people. It's hard to forgive. Can I tell you a couple things about forgiveness? Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgetting is about memory. Forgiveness is about choice. It's not that we can forget what's been done to us, right? None of us can forget on this side of eternity the things that have caused us pain. We are marked by them. We are scarred by them. They define a little bit of who we are. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is not ignoring the actions. Forgiveness is not saying, well, I'm just going to pretend it never happened. Forgiveness is not ignoring the actions. For forgiveness is not approving of it. Forgiveness is not excusing it. What forgiveness is, is declaring that there has been a wrong done to me and yet I'm going to release myself of the burden of that thing that's been done to me, and I'm going to put them in the hands of God. They will answer to him. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is releasing yourself from the debt and saying, God, I trust you to know what to do. I don't need them to pay me back. I need them to get right with you. That's what forgiveness is. It's release. That's the word forgiveness in the New Testament. It's the word to release. We release. By the way, Ephesians 4 be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ, God forgave you. The motivation of forgiveness is God forgiving us. By the way, we can't expect what costs God greatly to cost us little. Forgiveness is tough. When you're forgiving somebody else, it is difficult. It was difficult for God as well. And then lastly, we should use our anger as an opportunity for faith. When I get angry, when you get angry, it is a moment for faith to be enacted. That's what Jesus is getting at here, by the way. Notice the last verse in this section. It says, truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. He's talking about being in jail. And the image is in the, in the first century, if you went to jail for something, you were not allowed to get out until the debt was repaid, whatever it was. And it was a catch-22 because if you're in jail, how do you gain money to pay the debt? And so you would be in jail and you would be at the, you would be at the mercy of everybody else to come up with money for you. There was no way to make money while you're sitting in jail. And so it was a little bit of a mixed concept for people that went to prison, went to jail in that day. And he says, don't be trapped by this. Instead, anger is an opportunity for faith. What do I mean? When I'm angry, there's an opportunity to say, God, I trust you. Romans 12. I will repay. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's an opportunity for me to say, God, I trust that your way is better than my way. I feel angry in this moment. I feel an injustice has been done. I feel struggling about what I see. I'm angry over it. But God, I'm going to trust you more. I'm going to trust that you have a plan in this. I'm going to trust that your plan is better than my plan. And that, yes, I can bring some consequence to this circumstance, but your consequence would be far greater and more impacting. And so I'm going to trust God instead of trying to solve it myself. I'm going to give my anger in the hands of God and say, God, I trust you. Why? Because the goal of kingdom people is to be a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who make peace. That's our calling. Let me ask you this morning, how is your anger? Is your anger reflecting the kingdom life of Jesus? 
Or is your anger controlling you? No, we all confessed this morning. We all struggle with anger. We all have it. There's always something that makes us angry. There'll be something today that'll make you angry, that'll make me angry. How do we respond in our anger? We're going to end with this song, song, Come to the Altar. And uh, this wasn't planned as we you know, think about our service, but I just thought it was real important that we get a chance to respond. And I just want to ask you, maybe you're here, and for you, anger has crossed the line. You've been angry, and it's, it's crossed the line. And as a, as a picture of dedication, Lord, I'm going to ask you, if you just want to come up and pray, just right up here, as a picture of coming to the altar, you just want to come up here and you want to pray. Just you and God as, as kind of an accountability of the church. We all struggle with it. You all have done it. We all have anger. Maybe today would be a day you want to put a stake in the sand and say, you know what? I'm turning from it. I don't want it. I need to let it be short-lived. I need to kill my anger instead of letting it kill me. And so today, maybe you would want to put a stake in the sand. Maybe for some of you, it's forgiveness. You need the forgiveness of God. For some, maybe it's you need to forgive somebody else. They've hurt you, and you're holding on to it. And, and the problem is you're entrapped by something you didn't do. And today would be a day you would release that and say, God, I, I trust you. God, I, I'm giving this over to you. I'm not carrying this burden anymore. And, and so you would come, and you would pray and say, you know what? I'm going to forgive them. I'm releasing it. I'm letting go of what I'm holding on to and putting them in the hands of God who cares, who knows what he's doing. Maybe for some of you, you know somebody who's crossing the line with anger. Maybe you got a boss that keeps pushing that button. Maybe you've got a family member that just is driving you crazy and you want to pray for them. You want to pray for them and say, God, help me show them kingdom living. Help me reflect you in this moment. Would you stand with me as we pray? And then we're going to have a moment. If you just want to come up as a dedication, as a church, that we're coming to the altar and say, God, deal with whatever it is that makes us angry and help us to reflect you. Maybe it's other people that are just, you want to pray for a friend who you know is struggling with anger right now, maybe a family member, and you just want to pray. God, I want to thank you for your word. I need, I need this reminder. God, there's always something in our world to be angry about. There's always something right around us that can cause anger to stir up. And that anger is not wrong. That anger is a desire for righteousness. But God, when we begin to unpack it, so much of our anger is centered on us. It's centered on me. It's centered on my, my pride and my ego and my self-esteem. It's centered on what I think life should look like. So God, anger is a faith moment. It's a moment to say, I'm going to trust you. It's a moment to get right the things I need to get right. Because, God, those tiny murderous acts in our hearts, those thoughts of funerals for people that we're trying to put to death or away from us, God, they end up holding us back from kingdom living. And so, God, may we get those right. May what, what is murderous attitudes be brought before you. And may you rid us of those so we can reflect you all the more. All for your glory, Jesus. All for your name, our Savior, our King, the leader of the kingdom. All for your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's sing this song, and if you want to come and pray, we'd love to have, invite you to come pray, however you feel led.